Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, and welcome to Leech Fest, a medical history podcast about a perfectly fine nuclear reactor at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. Because today we're talking about the Chernobyl nuclear disaster and the various health risks associated with having a nuclear reactor explode on you. But before we put on our uh, radiation suits and mount the dosimeter on the lead-shielded truck that is this podcast, hi, I'm Mia Mulder. And I'm Roluca Montano, and that was the longest intro I've ever heard in my life. I put effort into these <laughs> intros. Every one of these intros, has I put 100% effort. <laughs> How have you been? I've been good. It's been really hot here in Stockholm. Mm, it's not been a heat wave. Yeah, it's been a heat wave. I guess everywhere, not just Stockholm. Um, so I've been, uh, I've been struggling. <laughs> heat is. I don't do well with heat. Yeah. If yeah. you don't know, like we say, every Swede says this internationally too. That like Swedish homes are designed to trap heat, which is great in the summer, uh, in the winter because it's cold. It's very cold here. But in the summer, it means that it is like we're living inside of an oven. <laughs> Uh, or like a kiln, mm-hmm. maybe a pot of stew. Mm-hmm. And it's not great uh, when you don't do well in heat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like like we do. It's It's been a nightmare, to mm. say the least. But I'm going to say, my tomato plants are loving it. They are doing so well. I don't think I've ever seen them grow so fast in my life. So that's the silver lining. That's good. I yeah. think all of my plants are struggling just as much as I am. <laughs> a little bit. They're just like splat on the ground, like me. Mm. Well, you should get you should get tomato plants. They love the heat. I'm uh, I'm a little obsessed with my tomato plants. I'm hoping to get a good harvest. Are you gonna this year. Are you gonna make an episode about tomatoes? We could make an episode about tomatoes. You want to make an episode about tomatoes? Yeah, the medical history podcast. Yes, we we could. We literally could. There is a much interesting medical history there because people used to make medicines out of the stem, but used to think that the that the fruit itself was poisonous. Mm, mm, yeah. Uh, let us know if you want us to make an episode about tomatoes. We will consider it. Anyway, how have you been, other than the unsufferable heat? Uh, I've been good. Not much has been happening, mm-hmm. honestly, that mm-hmm. I can remember. Um, I, I'm fully vaccinated, but I think I said that last episode, too. I think, yeah. So, I've just been doing okay. Mm, my, my, my broken arm from, from last episode is, is healing. It's basically back to normal, mm-hmm. almost. Uh, can't support much weight on it, but I can move it around, so that's good. Yeah. Big, no. big win in the marketplace of bones. <laughs> I'm glad to hear your um, arm is, is better. It doesn't hurt as much, from what I understand. So that's that's always a win. That's a big win. I can I can move props around for for videos nice. that I'm making. I can move the microphone around for the podcast. Cool. Okay. So what are we doing this episode? Well, we're talking about the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, mm-hmm. the 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 big one that everyone knows about, basically. Mm, yes, we are. And before we get into the episode, we, um, as always, we have a Patreon to thank. Mm. This episode, we are thanking Katrine Koka. Thank you, Katrine, for supporting us, for tuning in, listening. It means a lot. And uh, this episode is dedicated to you. We hope you like nuclear mm. energy. <laughs> Otherwise, We hope you like nuclear radiation. Well, yeah. Or Do you like we... fission? <laughs> Do you like what? Fission. Fission. Nuclear yeah. fission. Mm, Do you like nuclear decay heat? Because I'm going to be talking about nuclear decay heat. I don't even know what that is. Mm, it's going to be a good episode. Uh, but we also do want to thank all of our patrons. We do want to thank and all of them. And patrons do not receive uh, a part of the elephant's foot from Chernobyl. They don't get 
radioactive material. We promise you. Guaranteed no radiation as part of our reward. So when we're talking about Chernobyl, a lot of people I think have heard the name. I think a lot of people know like the gist of what's happened. Uh, maybe you've seen like the movie, uh, mm-hmm. the TV show, HBO One, mm-hmm, Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. Great show, by the way. I feel like there's been a lot of TV shows and movies about Chernobyl recently. Because there's one, there's the HBO show, and then there's this other movie on Netflix that just came out that was actually made in Russia. Yeah. And it's also about Chernobyl. I don't know if, like, the algorithm just knows we're doing this episode and it's like, oh, you want Chernobyl content? Do you want Chernobyl? Do you want Chernobyl? Here you have some. It's Chernobyl mania here. (laughs) Yeah. Chernobyl is having a resurgence, which... I think so. Is that good? It could be disastrous. We don't want Chernobyl to have a resurgence. We built a sarcophagus around it specifically to avoid this happening. I think, um, because I'm going to talk about how they have tours in Chernobyl now, Mm. and I think... I think that I've read about I've read something about how the tours are a lot more popular now because of the the TV show and it's like oh. yeah and it's like you know they they do say that they're safe but like we don't really know <laughs> so we'll see if it's good or it's not. It's a little sussy. It's a little sussy, yeah. Um, and the reason for why it's a bit sussy, I think, it's important because we need to, to in order to understand like what this disaster was in detail and the health effects that it had. I think it's important to like go back. And relive the disaster mm. like step by step because mm-hmm. there's a it's it's very complicated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's a nuclear re- reactor and those are you know as I said very complicated. Those mm. aren't easy to understand and I have a hard time understanding them. And I've spent like a month trying to write the script and I had to ask people on Twitter being like, hey, how do I easily explain the Chernobyl nuclear disaster? Because it's actually like significantly more complicated than people think. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, let's get started. On the evening of Saturday, the 25th of April in 1986, at the number four reactor in the Chernobyl nuclear power plant near the city of Pripyat in the north of the Ukrainian SSR in the Soviet Union, everything was fine. And uh, again, you know, I'm not a physicist. I studied history, specifically history of sexology, but I'm going to give them my good, honest try here to understand, to give you a sort of um, I, I, rundown. I, I have to say, though, the fact that you, as a as a historian who focused on sexology yes. um, is trying to explain nuclear reactors and what happened in Chernobyl mm-hmm. is really funny to me. Well, there I'm are, so excited. Well, there are similarities. There are rods going into course. So. Stop. <laughs> oh my God. I can't. <laughs> okay. All right. So typically you want nuclear reactors to be under control. And like cold-ish. You don't you don't want them to be too hot because then they explode. You want them to be a little hot so that they generate energy, mm. specifically so that they heat up water, turn it into steam. The steam drives turbines that spin. Spinning creates energy. You get power. Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. you want. But you don't want it to be too hot because then things explode, obviously. So every reactor has various ways of cooling it down and controlling the reaction, as it's called, because you want the reaction to be like stable and you want it to be moderate. And the Soviet reactor was called an RBMK reactor, it's a type of reactor, and it is cooled by water. And it is, water is a perfectly okay coolant in most nuclear reactors, but it, it's slightly more risky than other types of coolant because it's, it's just a bit more unstable. Like, as it is. But that's fine. Usually we have we have many safety precautions to regulate. So water itself is not that bad, but I just wanted to mention it. And water is also cheap, which is very important here. Typically, the coolant pumps are run by power generated by the power plant, 
or from the electric grid generally, not just from this power plant, because like there are many power plants, there are like multiple reactors just in this power plant and the electric grid runs. And this is very important, right? Pumps need to constantly cool water to, to the reactor so it's okay. Now, most of the power generated by a nuclear power plant is by nuclear fission, by splitting the atom that creates neutrons that hit other atoms that split more neutrons. It's a chain reaction. But there is some energy that is being generated by nuclear decay, roughly 8%. During fission, though, everything is fine. We like fission. That's how we produce the energy. Because the coolant pumps will be driven by the energy generated by fission, but when you shut the reactor down, the decay will keep generating heat for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And again, normally that's fine, because the pumps for the coolants will still run from the electric grid. But here's, here's a point of failure, as it's called. Because if there's an electrical failure, that means that the coolant pumps won't run, and if you shut down the reactor, then it's going to keep generating heat without coolant, which is disaster territory. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they knew about this. this. They knew that this was a big like cause for concern. This is where the safety test comes in. This is why they were doing tests. But they do have backups here. Chernobyl had three backup diesel generators so that in a worst case scenario, the coolant would keep flowing during those like crucial couple of minutes when the core is like slowing down. But those generators would take roughly a full minute to get up to full speed. So like they thought about this like worst case scenario, worst case scenario but there's mm. a minute where mm -hmm. things are like it's going to take a minute for the diesel unit to cool up and that's like a, that's risky. And there was an idea to fix this that the spinning of the turbines could be used as power to the coolant pumps while they're spinning down. So after you shut down the reaction the, the turbines are going to keep spinning for a little bit but the momentum of them will slow down over time. And the idea was that this would keep the coolant pumps going like on low energy for a little bit until the diesel generators would kick in. Smart. Right? That's that's pretty ingenious solution. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't it wouldn't completely cover the risk area, but it would sort of like be a, a like a buffer zone. Exactly. And and they and this seems like a pretty good idea. So they were going to test this in practice to see if this worked. However, they had some trouble getting the reactor to the level that they wanted for the test to work. They had tried doing this test a couple of times before and it hadn't worked super well, so they were going to try again. And a quirk with a lot of nuclear reactors is that if they run a like moderately low power for a long time, it produces a molecule called xenon-135. It's not super important, but it's a cool name. But what this means basically is that if this molecule or this, if this element exists in the generator in too high volume, it's basically going to suck all the energy out. It's going to cause it not to work very well. It's like ice. If that mm. works. Like you put, you put a bunch of ice in your oven, the oven's not going to work very well. <laughs> Normally, you can fix this problem by slowly raising the power of the generator, which will, quote-unquote, burn off the xenon and make the reactor work like you want it to do. And here, here come the mistakes. Here, here things start going wrong in this test. They wanted this test done and over with. And, they, and because they had a hard time raising the power at all, they took some risks beyond the safety measures that were allowed. Because... Nuclear reactors have control rods that, that can moderate, which means to speed up the reaction or, or inhibit the reaction in the nuclear core. And if you take out the control rods, typically meant to slow down the reaction and make it not do as much uh, nuclear fission, this increases the reaction. And as part of this test, almost all the control rods were taken out. Almost every single one of them were taken out in a desperate attempt to raise the energy, which is risky because you don't want the reaction to go too quick. Unfortunately, this led to something called steam bubbles, 
in the coolant, also called voids. Voids don't absorb as many neutrons as normal water does, which means that the reaction keeps going because those neutrons are going to go into nuclear fuel, speeding up the reaction. And normally, like, steam voids are fine. Again, with control rods, you can still slow the reaction down by absorbing the neutrons, and the core can, so far, handle this. Like, the reaction is going up, but the core is fine. It's a nuclear, it's a nuclear reactor, they can do all sorts of shit. <laughs> now, it's important to say that a part of the control rods, most of which are taken out, don't actually slow down the reaction, it speeds it up. Because the control rods in this reactor, and in many reactors, work as either a brake in the reaction or an accelerator. Sometimes they work as like the gas pedal or the brakes of, of the reactor. But since most of the coolant rods were out, and the primary coolant system was turned off, and the backups were not working fully, and the reason why the primary coolant system was off was because they were testing the backups, right? This leaves them with very, very little margin for error. Like there are voids, uh, they're trying to raise the reaction quickly, control rods are out, cooling system not working properly, like danger area. At this stage of the test, the reaction was going a bit too quick. So the head of the test orders all the control rods to be inserted at once, basically, to sort of shut down the core ASAP. Sounds good in a sense of like, you know, things are kind of going out of control. The, shut down the operation. Down. Yep. In order to shut down the reaction, they have to insert the control rods. That happens in every reactor, right? Uh, and in this reactor, what happened was the control rods are made up of two elements, right? Like I mentioned before, the brakes and the accelerator. And the accelerator has to be put in first. And usually, again, that's not a big problem if if you're like taking in a few control rods at a time, uh, in a, like not all together at once, but like you're you're slowly putting in them occasionally. And they don't accelerate the process for a long time, just like a second or two, uh, until the, the brakes hit, kick in, so to say. That's what the graphite tips are. It's basically half the control rod that just speeds it up. You can tell a little bit here where the danger is. Where if you have to put in the accelerator first and you put it all in at the same time. And it should be said though that these types of reactors are one of the few ones that do this because it's cheap. It's cheap to combine the control rods into both accelerator and, and, uh, and uh, brake. This along with the fact that as they put in the control rods, a lot of the absorbing water is being displaced. The water also kind of acts as a, as a control rod, basically. It, it absorbs neutrons and slows down reaction. That's being displaced with the accelerator. So again, two more elements that are speeding up the reaction in a very short amount of time. This leads to something called neutron flux. And this is something that they knew happened with this type of reactor. They knew it happened at other reactors too. And again, normally, I said this like for every stage here, but normally this is fine. But mm -hmm. when you put them all in at the same mm -hmm. time and an unconventional number of control rods at the same time, suddenly it's like, it's like you're in a car and you're, and you're pushing like 800 different gas pedals at the same time for a second. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not going to make the car go fast or slow. It's going to make the engine explode. <laughs> Because they're not meant to do that. So I wonder if they just thought that, well, because it's only like one second, because it's only like a very short time mm. that you have this like acceleration, then it's okay. Yeah. Or do you, it, how do you think they thought about it? I, it's possible that they didn't actually know about it. Because uh -huh. this this was not like super common knowledge. And the crew that was doing this test was not super experienced. And they hadn't been fully briefed about what the test was going to be. It, they may not even have thought that it was relevant. Because normally this reaction only happens when you're shutting down the reaction typically. Like when when you're when you're sort of like closing up for the day, like you're you're putting stop. 
which means that the reaction is already low, the reaction is going down, and you're probably just putting in like a few control rods slowly. Mm -hmm. But here, what's happening is the reaction is going up, mm -hmm. which is not typically what happens. So they knew that unexpected surges of powers would happen at other reactors, but the circumstances were so different. And, and because typically the reactant is going down, and because it is usually like a smaller type of reaction because fewer control rods, the reactors to which this had happened to before had been fine. Because, yeah, it's an unexpected surge of power, but they're shutting down anyway, so it's still within the margin of error. Yeah. Here, though, it's the opposite situation. It's going yeah. up, it's already high, and then an unexpected surge of energy happens. Mm -hmm. That's not good. <laughs> This massive surge of energy led the core to operate at around 800% normal operating capacity. It may have been more than that, uh, as, a, as a much to 8,000% energy capacity. The fact that we don't know also is... It's because meters maxed out. Yeah, 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 exactly. It could be 800%, could be 8,000. Because like, the sensors know. may have been broken by how high it mm -hmm, was. Mm -hmm. like, we're like, again, like most nuclear reactors work like very slowly, even mm -hmm. though they're very powerful. Like they have a slow reaction that like creates energy over time. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, are, they are powering a lot here. This causes a steam boiler to explode. This is the first reaction, because there are actually two explosions in, in, at Chernobyl, two major ones. But this, this massive like, heat causes, a, um, it causes the water that is in the reactor to quickly like, expand. A lot of more steam boilers are forming, which causes the backup cooling system that they're testing to just go kapoof. But this first explosion, mm -hmm. this is like put together in hindsight. Yeah. Most people don't know about the first explosion. The first explosion leads to a lot of different cooling and fuel valves to the core being severed. Because it's, it's, a, it's a steam boiler full of water that's meant to cool it. And now suddenly a bunch of pipes that are putting water on the core to make it cool don't do that anymore. Which means that all of the water that's left in the core turns to steam, mm. like instantly. Mm -hmm. There's no new water coming in, it can't go out, it's stuck. This leads to two seconds after the steam boiler explosion to the much more severe core explosion, which people still today don't fully know how it happened. So did everything kind of happen like at the same time or was it... Almost. Almost. But mm. like very quickly. Obviously, I'm hugely oversimplifying here. Yeah. Like there are many decisions made in the control tower. There are many decisions made elsewhere. And there are many other like scientific parts here. But like this is the simple as I can get it. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry that I'm like no, dumping I'm just... science talk here. <laughs> well, it's a, you know, it's an educational podcast. It's a scientific podcast. I'm mm. just trying to understand like how, how it sort of like felt to be a worker. You know, like mm. could they hear things exploding like throughout the plant and be like, oh, they, that thing just exploded. Oh, I can hear it in the other. Or did everything probably, just kind of like explode at the same time? So they, they, so they didn't so like know what happened. They, they heard a, a bang, mm -hmm. like a, a small-ish bang first. That's the steam boiler explosion. Yeah. But that could have been anything. That yeah. could have been safe. That could have been like an electrical fire or something. Mm. You know, still not great. <laughs> but still not great. Things but, exploding like, typically one, to two seconds after that explosion, the core goes boom. That's yeah. the big one yeah, that yeah. like explodes the roof, the biological shield, as it's called, which is a, is a shield above the, the core itself to make sure that you can walk around it without yeah. dying. That explodes. A lot of control rods explode. Mm -hmm. And the reason for why this is happening, the most like typical theory as to why this happened was simply a, like a thermal explosion, that the heat of the core was accelerating so quickly now because there's no steam the reactions keep going, like there's no water, sorry. Everything that's slowing down the reaction is gone and everything that's speeding it up is it's, happening at the same mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. um, which 
not great. But what, what's good about the second explosion, weirdly enough, is that it shuts down the fission. It has exploded. It's no longer like the nuclear fuel is no longer undergoing fission, which is good because if it had kept going, it would have been an atom bomb. However, it is extraordinarily hot, the core. And the core has also been detached due to this explosion from its surrounding like protection structures. The roof is out. Mm -hmm. there, uh, there are graphite debris that has been flying around from the, from the control rod, which means that there are fires like all over the place. And also to the core itself is on fire. The second it came into contact with air too, that's when it caught fire. Some of the boiler exploded, a lot of the infrastructure got cut off and it, this caused the reactor to melt down. This is where nuclear meltdown comes from, the term. So on April 26th at 1.28 a.m., the first firefighters arrive at the scene. They have no knowledge of the radiation. They have no knowledge that the core itself is mm -hmm. exposed. Mm -hmm. They're not wearing any protective clothing. Many are standing on the debris field. Much of which was ejected from the reactor itself. Mm -hmm. So it's all like radioactive material. Oh, it's, <clears throat> it's extremely radioactive material. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, so, but some of it's think... apart from the core itself. Yeah, like exactly. It's been in the reaction. Exactly. Like, yeah, so they, but they think... They just it, think it's a fire. They think it's an electrical fire. Yeah. Because uh, that is what most firefighters there were... That's like the most common fire that they were dealing yeah, with. Like, yeah. it's a power plant. They're going to have a lot of electrical fires because mm -hmm. they produce a lot of electricity. Because I've also had, heard someone occasionally say, like, why, why wouldn't the firefighters know it was radioactive? Shouldn't they always wear radioactive clothing protection thing? It's like... No, because, like, 99%. the core was fully insulated. So yeah, it wouldn't... They think that the core is fine. Yeah. And, you know, typically it would be. Typically it would be protected. Mm -hmm. But alas, alas not. Not and I'm going to leave the health sense. effects of this standing on the debris field to you. Because uh, I feel like that that is a lot... It's just a lot. Radiation is generally one of the worst and least understandable dangers that people can face. Uh, and I'm not smart enough to deal with that. But at 6 a.m. the same night, uh, same morning now, throughout the night, all fires have been extinguished on the site, except for the core, which will burn for days after this. And the reason why we don't fully know like all the details is because a lot of people who worked at the power plant in the control area or worked like in direction to the core uh, died like very close to to the explosion itself. And that fire of the core, that is the real long-term issue of the disaster. Because as it burns, all the smoke that it produces and all the particulates of that smoke are extremely radioactive because they're basically mixed with nuclear fuel. Mm -hmm. And it's burning off nuclear fuel and taking it off into the atmosphere. So not, now, not only do we have a bunch of radioactive stuff on the ground mm -hmm. that are maybe the most spicy rocks that Ukraine have, has, uh, has ever faced... Um, we also have radioactive dust flying up into the atmosphere, and the fact that the smoke rises quickly and it goes off, uh, and that goes off flying for miles. And I'm gonna mention that later too in a little bit. Now, having radioactive stuff in the air uh, is, you know, not in and of itself bad uh, or dangerous to people, but the danger comes when this spicy dust comes down on the ground in what we call fallout. That's where we get the term fallout. Because then this dust can enter water sources, it can land on crops, it can land on people. Typically, wherever this cloud goes, there will be at least a little bit of fallout. And it's going to happen more fallout where it rains, because the rain is going to catch particulates on the way mm. down. And that is not a rain that you want to dance in. I'm dancing in the Chernobyl cloud. Most of this cloud goes over modern-day Belarus. Some of it goes over Poland. Because the winds are going north, generally it is going north. It heads over a bit of the Baltics and a little bit over Sweden, which we're going to uh, connect to in a, a bit too. And while this is happening, the Soviet Union, the people in charge, <laughs> hasn't said anything internationally. The global community doesn't really know that anything has happened yet. 
and barely anything locally either. Like the people of the Soviet Union also don't know that there's been a huge nuclear disaster. Yeah, they they mainly just told people that there was like an accident at the plant, but I, nothing, yeah. but nothing to worry about, right? Like they kind of framed it as like a. It's being handled. It's being handled. Don't just worry about it. yeah, just just like a, a little fire. It's fine. It's fine. Outside of a few people in disaster management and the people being evacuated, most people of the Soviet Union had no idea yeah. that anything was happening. Eventually, however, this dust cloud reaches Sweden. Right where we are. Specifically, the Foschmark nuclear power plant, who initially probably had a small panic attack, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, thinking that maybe they had a leak of their own, because they're detecting radiation, like yeah. way higher radiation than they should be. Yeah. And they figure out that this has to have come from somewhere else. I guess they checked all their equipment and like yeah. <clears throat> they checked like the plant itself and yeah. they realized that like everything was in order with plants, so mm. it has to come from somewhere else. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and checking with I think it's I think it's called like Radiolog Radiologisk Institute or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they um they also check weather patterns. Mm. They noticed that, like, hey, there's been a lot of wind coming in coming from the from south the, yeah. and from the east, from, from the Soviet Union. And we also mm. heard that there was a fire there, so maybe those things are Oh, they haven't even said that yet. Oh, really? That's not yet. They have said nothing internationally yet. Um, so what happens is the Swedish government actually asks the Soviet Union, I guess mm-hmm. they call them up or something, being like, uh, hey, guys, do you have a nuclear disaster going on, like a really big one? <laughs> Might want to check that. And the Soviets go, no, we don't. <laughs> Wow. We, we're fine. The gaslighting in this. <laughs> we don't. You're crazy, Sweden. You're crazy. <laughs> we in nuclear fire? Um... We don't even have nuclear power plants. Yeah. You, wait, pro- you probably... You drank you that. To which the Swedes say, um, okay, we're going to have to tell the International Atomic a- Energy Agency about this. Mm-hmm. And the Soviets go, oh, that nuclear fire. Oh, that <laughs> disaster. Oh, that one. And then they announce that, yeah. that something wow. has happened. Uh, I, I love that. I love that story, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. And this, and this is where they do tell uh, the Soviet people about it too. Up until this point, right, they've, they've only evacuated people in, in Pripyat. They haven't made the, 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 the big zone. Mm-hmm. So this is like the big first announcement that they've made. And here is the full announcement that the Soviets made on TV. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're going to read it? I'm going to read it. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a long one too. Uh, there has been an accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. One of the nuclear reactors was damaged. The effects of the accident are being remedied. Assistance has been provided for any affected people. An investigative commission has been set up. Done. <laughs> Followed uh, in, a, in the next couple of days, they, they talked about uh, the, um, uh, the Three Mile Island nuclear incident in the US. Oh, yeah. Um, which, is, which is what a lot of like Soviet historians call whataboutism. Because mm-hmm. like... You they know, had it. They, they had fine. it. It's fine. Yeah, it's not even that bad here, guys. It's just a small nuclear disaster. This, is, like this, so far that I've talked about, is basically the disaster as it pertains to health issues. But there are so much more that like potential health issues that mm-hmm. could be part of this. Yeah. Because there's also like there are uh, I think bubbling tanks. Yeah, there are bubbling tanks underneath the core, and as the core was melting down, um, cause, you know, it's 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 melting concrete and making melting anything that's around it, just sinking through the building and through the earth into the basements. And if it had reached the bubbling chambers in, in the basement that are full of water, it would have exploded because mm, it would have turned more. it all in, in, into steam, which would have probably fu- um, messed up the groundwater. <laughs> And would have uh, probably caused like another huge explosion, yeah, almost like a small atomic bomb, which so, is not what you want. So the potential here is actually like this is pretty lenient for what we, yeah, for what could, could, have, could been, have been. Could have been worse. Like half of Ukraine could have been plus irradiated wasteland. Yeah. 
Anyway, in the aftermath of the explosion, and after most of the population around the plant had been evacuated in what is now called the Pripyat Exclusion Zone, they, they like basically made a circle around the mm-hmm. around the power plant and like over the next couple of days they kept expanding and kept expanding because they realized that it's actually really bad but the initial danger is over the core after a few days had been covered up with boron and a bunch of other materials to keep it from spewing dust and the core had finally like wasn't on fire anymore yeah but to be fair the core is still extremely like radioactive yeah Yeah. still is and if it caught fire again today, this could happen again. Like mm. this, I'm not like the, It's not like done. It's, they haven't fixed it. It's just contained. It was what like six hundred thousand volunteers that came to like clean up the area and basically like take away mm. radioactive material and bring in boron into the like core. Yeah. Or was it was they, it the core and like they, the surrounding? They dropped a lot of like uh, materials from, from helicopters, helicopters like yeah. onto the core, but yeah. they did also eventually manage to sort of tip over the edge and like a lot yeah, of but those. They, they had, they had yeah. to to have people like actually come in and pick it up with their hands. Well, with, well, with gloves and stuff. But yeah, I remember, yeah, yeah not but, not the core itself. The core, no, not the core. You, you I suppose, yeah. The, there there the were some people, yeah. areas. Mm. Exactly, like a lot of the debris field and the, the graphite, for example, all of which also extremely radioactive. Yeah, yeah. But the thing about like radioactive. Uh, radioactivity is like if you can protect yourself properly if you can have like a good mask whatever if you have like protection and you don't breathe anything in mm-hmm. most likely you might be fine a big danger from like radioactivity in this case was if you breathed in the radioactive dust that's inside you and you're being yeah. constantly radiated that's why uh, like in the movies and the documentaries mm-hmm. for example you didn't spraying off everything after this sort of initial cleanup comes the task of cleaning up generally and securing the reactor and this is where people started to build what became known as the uh, chernobyl sarcophagus where they just boarded up the hole up top and closed down reactor number four should be mentioned that like during, while this is happening a lot of this is happening the other reactors because there are four reactors at chernobyl the three other reactors are some of them still going they're just still making power yeah I know that I understand that they had to do that, but honestly, if that if if I was in charge and that happened, I would shut down the whole thing, like never, yeah. never touch the plant again. Oh, close it off, <laughs> turn off everything. It's fine. It costs a lot, we will, but we're we'll mm, we'll live without is... electricity for for until we we figure it out. Mm. But we're not we're not using it, it again. It's safe, but I'm scared. I don't want to be <laughs> here. I don't want to be next to Chernobyl yeah. before. Just burn um, down the city. <laughs> actually, I found a fun story while I was researching this. Like, uh, I think the person at reactor number three, mm-hmm. while the explosion at number four was happening, the, the they're chi- like turning the chi- off the power. <laughs> no, the chief at number four was like, uh, the chief at number three was like, "Hey, we should turn off our reactor just in case, mm-hmm. right?" And the chief engineer was like, "No, no, we, we don't need to. It's this, don't, why? Don't, don't worry this, about yeah. it." Uh, and it took until like it took four hours or something like that for the chief to be like. We're gonna we're gonna turn it down because yeah. like it's still on fire and the roof is gone. Yeah. So we're just gonna like, uh, uh, beep, beep, beep. more people with anxiety should be in um, <laughs> decision making positions because listen we we are cautious. <laughs> we we will err on the side of caution. We will err on the side of caution and uh, nothing bad ever happens when you do. All right. Another reason why they wanted to build the sarcophagus in the aftermath was that. They don't want people to sort of like wander into the into the reactor space because people can just walk up to it. Yeah. Like who's gonna who's gonna like there's a fence, but like who's gonna stop you? There's not like a guard in front of the in front of the core. So they also did this to sort of just like close it down a little bit. Or they wanted to prevent something like the world's worst lightning strike from occurring because can you imagine the nightmare if that happened? 
Similarly, a lot of buildings in Pripyat uh, were cleaned uh, as, as much as they could in the sense of like spraying a bunch of water and like, yeah, rinsing up a bunch of dust and letting that like accumulate. Uh, but that also meant that like they, they put like clothing and the uniforms of first responders in, into basements because the radiation, just because you clean off like the wall of a building that's irradiated, the dust is still going to be in the water. That water is going to run somewhere and then that's going to be like irradiated for like a little bit. It doesn't remove any radiation. You're, they're just moving it and they're moving it into basements. Uh, so that's why, for example, if you go if you go to Chernobyl today, like you can't go into some basements because they're full with like firefighting uniforms mm. that are like still clicky clacky from the like radiator. Clicky clacky. Well, you know how you have like a decimeter and it goes like. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Um, and they do all of this to isolate the parts that are that are radioactive because that they they can't unradioactive something. Even today, most uh, of the area is safe. I think you're going to talk a little bit about that too. Mm-hmm. Although uh, there is a slightly increased level of radiation, even like in the cleaner areas around, like there is, you know, there's some radio, there's a little yeah, more there's, radioactive. Yeah, there's hot spots and that's, it kind of depends on what you said earlier about like the weather patterns because, yeah. you know, the, the it kind of just really depends on where those, where the wind and like the clouds yeah. took the initial fallout too. So like there are some areas that are close to the plant that are less radioactive than areas that are further away. Yeah. So it's, it, you know, it's not as uh, easy as just like the, the further away you get from the plant, the safer you are. Mm, exactly. And yeah, as you said, like, like, as you said, even today, there are a lot of areas that are just dangerously radioactive. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there is the elephant's foot, which is part of the core that melted. If you look it up, it, it looks a bit like an elephant's foot. It's just a molten ball of concrete, rocks, dust, nuclear fuel, and metal. It's extraordinarily radioactive and will be for thousands of years and it is resistant to to drilling and also to the fire of an AK-47 because someone during this cleanup process took a gun to that thing and shot it why would you do that? I don't know <laughs> but I, I needed to how include you, that in the how episode how do you witness just a nuclear explosion and decide to shoot I'm gonna shoot the core and because they, they, they also had to do this in like full radiation outfits too right because this yeah. thing is like deadly to be around you're you can't be like, close to wanna, it for like more than a couple of seconds do you want to make another hole in the plant in the core do do you need more radiation to come out like maybe they could defeat it i feel like it, <laughs> it speaks to a russian sense of pride when they think that they're like the the pride of the russian military the ak-47 can maybe defeat radiation yeah uh, but it can't unfortunately mm-hmm. it's too powerful and that is powerful. The... You need you need a stronger gun. <laughs> stronger that's, I think gun. that's the problem. Like the AK forty seven is just too weak. You need a tank. Yeah, you need to shoot that. Core. You need to shoot it. But yeah, that's the um, that's the story of how uh, the Chernobyl nuclear disaster happened and a bit about why bad decision making and also flaws in the reactor that mm. makes it go up when it should go down and speaking of bad decision making because you you didn't really talk about it super much but you did mention yes. it that the team was not very well like they didn't really understand what they were doing was it was they, it they so, weren't okay. fully briefed in the in the circumstances of the test right um i think i remember from the series because i saw the series and I, I okay obviously i don't know how accurate it is but it did seem that they had like a few new people on the team or something like that is that historically accurate uh not specifically new but what happened was that like the they had done this test before mm-hmm. and hadn't it hadn't worked like they wanted it to do but then because they're running like deep into the night this is basically the night shift mm-hmm. uh, and the preparation for the test had been done for the day shift so the day shift were the ones who had like been prepared, they had been briefed, they knew what was the test, this test was going to involve and how it was going to work, but the night shift wasn't. 
So the night shift was basically just that listening to the main guy mm-hmm. was doing the and test. like reading instructions of a paper. Basically, yeah. yeah. So so even though so even though they were given like weird instructions like taking out all of their control rods, which is not something that they would do, it's against the rules to do that. It's against safety precautions. They they were like, well, I guess that's part of the test. Yeah, yeah. Because they had been running it for a long time on low reaction. Yeah. The xenon made it so they couldn't get it up to the power they wanted. Yeah. Uh, and the main guy, in a desperate attempt to do this as quickly as possible, was just like, just take them all out. Yeah. Just full full on the accelerator, and it'll be fine. And then it wasn't. Then it exploded. And then it wasn't. Well, thank you for the uh, history brief. Let's. I hope I hope I got everything right. <laughs> I, t- I talked to uh, talked to people who are really into nuclear reactors about the script, and they told me I'm, I've got everything All right. right but... Good. I, you know, honestly, I um, I watched the show, <laughs> and um, even even a lot of that like kind of went over my head. Like I'm yeah. I'm a you know I'm a bioscience gal. I don't really know so much about like nuclear energy and stuff. Mm. So to me, sounds good. <laughs> and again, this is this sounds is legit. overly simplified. This is yeah. as easy as I could yeah. get it, and yeah, it's yeah. still like I don't fully comprehend what I'm saying. Yeah, but um, hopefully we got it right. And now we're going to talk about the health consequences, which is something that I thankfully know a bit more about. Mm. So in this section, I'm going to talk about the health consequences of the Chernobyl disaster, and I'm going to focus on the effects of radiation specifically. So a nuclear detonation releases three forms of energy. Heat, which accounts for approximately 35 of total energy. Shock or bomb blast, which accounts for like 50%. And radiation, which accounts for the remaining 50. So immediately following the disaster, two Chernobyl plant workers died due to the blast effects of the explosion on the night of the accident. One person was killed immediately and a second died in the hospital soon after as a result of their injuries. Acute radiation syndrome, which is one of the main things that I'm going to talk about, was originally diagnosed in 237 people people on site. Jesus. Um, yeah, on site and involved with the cleanup, and it was later confirmed in 134 cases. And of these, 28 people died as a result of ARS within a few weeks of the accident, and another 14 died in the following years due to um, suspected radiation-induced cancer. That's a horrible way to die, too. Yeah, right? uh, yeah, yeah. ARS is... Uh, well, you know, most illnesses are not pleasant, but radiation and use sickness is, yeah. is really awful. Because yeah. you've basically been checked in the microwave and cooked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm going to talk about um, sort of the symptoms and how it manifests itself in the body. Fun. So that's Welcome to Leech Fest, a horror podcast. <laughs> I want to say, though, that the reaction of an individual to exposure does depend on a number of variables. So it's not like really cut and dry, but like the dose matters, the type and the volume of the tissue that is irradiated matters, the person's age, the person's state of health, and then also, of course, the quality of medical care available, which is kind of a problem. Um, a lot of the people who died in the hospital like didn't really receive the kind of care that like they could receive today. You know, I mean, it was the Soviet Union in, like, the, in 86. Like, <laughs> it, was, it wasn't amazing. And also the lethality of the radiation also depends on the dose rate. So doses received over a shorter period of time uh, cause more damage, which is why the people who were in the plant at the time and they were just struck by this intense radiation over a short time, those were the people who suffered the most. Yeah. Also because it depends on the distance from the source. Yeah, like the closer you are, the worse. Yeah. So acute radiation syndrome is also known as radiation sickness or radiation poisoning. It is a collection of health effects that are caused by being exposed to high amounts of ionizing radiation in a short amount of time. 
ARS involves a total dose of greater than 0.7 gray that generally occurs from a source outside the body, delivered within a few minutes. So the effect of exposure to high levels of radiation causes DNA damage, which later creates serious chromosomal aberrations if left untreated. Ionizing radiation can also produce reactive oxygen species, which can damage cells, but also further damage DNA and mRNA by causing local ionization events. So I don't know if you know, but our DNA gets damaged all the time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we have mechanisms through which our DNA uh, repairs itself. However, radiation, um, the difference with radiation is that it creates clusters of DNA damage, which includes loss of nuclear bases, which are um, uh, tyrosine, adenine, cytosine, and guanine. They probably remember it's like the letters, T, A, G, and C. I do not, but thank you. <laughs> so Bold of you to assume I remember anything from high school biology. Um, anyway, most people know the basis. It's like, you know, and you have to, okay, may, I'm sure I can awaken this memory inside your brain. Do you remember when you had to like match T and A and C and G? And like, you know, you would complete the strand of DNA by matching the letters. No. No. Um, okay. Well, anyway, uh, those are the bases that make up our DNA. And basically, this, so, so radiation creates like clusters of DNA damage. And part of that damage is loss of nuclear bases. So usually, uh, or mo most times when our DNA gets damaged, it's like, you know, maybe loss of like a few nuclear bases. But with radiation, it's like just a chunk of DNA that goes missing. So then that is a lot harder for the body to repair if it even is possible at all. Yeah. Um, acute radiation poisoning also leads to the breakage of the sugar phosphate backbone, which is the structure that the bases are linked to. So like if you imagine the feel like the, the, the helix, the sugar phosphate backbone is like the, the strands that the bases are oh. attached to. So, so it basically undoes your DNA. It just it, it it just um, it basically disintegrates like chunks of the DNA. Mm, that's horrifying. So um, yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of cluster damage is um, yeah, like I said, is a unique effect of radiation exposure. It doesn't get damaged like that like normally. Yeah. And it maybe it takes a very long time to repair. Maybe it doesn't get repaired at all. So ARS is typically divided into three categories or types based on the areas of the body which are affected. So there's a fourth type, which is not usually counted as a syndrome, but most people who are exposed to radiation develop this type, and it's the cutaneous syndrome, which means that they develop lesions, lesions on the skin. So early lesions include erythema, which is redness of the skin, edema, which is swelling, and dry descamation, which is peeling of the skin. Ah. And then more advanced lesions include bule, which is formation of fluid-filled sacs under the skin. And, you know, they, they even, in the in the TV show, they actually show that, you know, mm, like, yeah. I think if you think about, like, a person who's been exposed to radiation, you can probably imagine, like, somebody who has, like, very red skin, um, somebody who has, like, just fluid-filled sacs mm. and, like, you know, skin, skin is, like, is peeling off. off. Yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, the, the bule, um, moist descamation, which again, again, like, skin peeling off, but, it, like, deeper layers of the skin are coming off, ulceration, and onycholysis, so nails falling off. But in any case, the, the three actual syndromes are as follows. The first syndrome is hematopoietic, which occurs when radiation of more than one gray is delivered to the bone marrow. What is the gray? A gray is the SI unit, 
that is used for radiation. And it's, oh. it just describes uh, radiation absorbed. Oh. So radiation of more than one gray delivered to the bone marrow can lead to a drop in the number of blood cells, which can result in infections as white blood cells are vital for the immune system. Or it can lead to anemia due to loss of red blood cells. The gastrointestinal syndrome is the second one. And it uh, follows exposure to higher doses of radiation, typically six to eight grays, and is characterized by a sudden death of certain cell types in the intestinal tract, specifically crypt cells. Crypt cells. Yeah, I I knew you were the gonna... death of the crypt cells. I knew you were gonna mm-hmm. you were gonna mention that. So crypt crypt cells are um, cells that line the the intestinal tract, mm. and um, the thing with crypt cells is they also produce mucus which is a very important component and it's very it's vital for like intestinal health because there's a lot of bacteria in the intestine so if you don't have mucus then bacteria is gonna like attack basically damage cells and that can cause ulcers so the apoptosis of these cells leads to like i said to a disrupted intestinal mucosal barrier and then ulceration leading to gastrointestinal bleeding fluid and electrolyte imbalance, and susceptibility to infections and sepsis. Lastly, the neurovascular syndrome occurs at high absorbed doses of radiation, higher than 10 gray usually, and results from changes in the central nervous system. These changes include impaired capillary circulation with damage to the blood-brain barrier, interstitial edema, acute inflammation, inflammation of the meninges, and hypertrophy of perivascular astrocytes. Patients exposed to 10 to 20 gray present severe nausea and vomiting, headache, neurologic deficits, and abnormal cognition. The syndrome is very dangerous and can lead to death. It sounds like it. Yeah, so you kind of, you know, you can kind of see like a worsening of syndromes or a worsening of symptoms with an increase in radiation. You know, yeah. like at the beginning you have, um, you know, like it's it's very like surface level. You know, you're yeah. exposed to less than one gray, and that leads to 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 skin lesions and like redness and, and all that. Which stuff. is still pretty bad. Yeah, it's awful. But then but the fact that it's like ten to tw- mm-hmm. like twenty times that. Yeah. And then. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so then it, get, it goes to bone marrow, and then it goes to like the gastrointestinal system, and then finally it goes to, to the central nervous system. Yeah, that's all very horrifying. And treatment for ARS exists, but the kind of treatment that you would receive depends on the amount of radiation that you would receive. In the cases of people receiving more than 10 gray of radiation, they would not be treated for ARS. Yeah, they get like pain medication, basically. They, they would... get morphine, and, and morphine yeah. doesn't even work, I've heard that much. I don't know about that. I've heard that like a lot of pain medication just like doesn't work as well if you have like very acute radiation sickness because mm-hmm. your nerves don't work that well yeah, anymore. Yeah. So you just like... So you just suffer. But that is horrifying. 10, you said? Yeah. That's not uh, a lot. So 10 and more, uh, they would just receive palliative care. Yeah. Um, so it's more like management of symptoms. But yeah. I just feel like that would, be, that would be so horrifying to like go to the hospital and be told that, you know... We can make you comfortable. And like not even not even that, but basically like we're not going to bother to treat you because you're going to die like very soon. Yeah. But they do have treatments for people who receive like less radiation. So some of the therapies indicated for people with acute radiation poisoning, but you know, less than 10 gray include blood transfusions, antibiotic therapy because your immune system is shot. Yeah. So usually you would get an antibacterial, an antiviral and an antifungal. So they have to like... <laughs> They have to cover all bases. It's to make a new immune system for you. I mean, they just have to make sure that you don't get infected with anything. Yeah. 
They also would give you colony stimulating factors. So those are factors which stimulate stem cells to differentiate and proliferate into specific cell types, usually white blood cells, you know, if your bone marrow is, is affected, and sometimes also stem cell transplants. Okay, so, so those are the treatments that people would get. And that's just for ARS. Now, another thing that has been talked about a lot in the context of Chernobyl is obviously cancer. Like, we know that there is a clear correlation between exposure to radiation and cancer. So, workers and the public were exposed to three main types of radionuclides. Iodine-131, cesium-134, and cesium-137. Iodine-131 has a half-life of about eight days, so exposures were over about two months after the accident. So that's 10 half-lives. However, cesium-137 has a half-life of 30 years, meaning that this will still be a concern for about 300 years. Yeah. Which I want to say, bold of them to assume we're going to be around for 100 years. Um, but um, I don't think they're assuming that the radiation will we'll be, be around for 300 years. We... <laughs> Yeah, it's a different. That's a different. Whether topic. or not it's going to be a problem. <laughs> that's a different thing. Yeah, that's yeah. a different thing. So exposure to radioactive fallout has caused an enormous increase in the incidence of childhood thyroid carcinoma in Belarus, Ukraine, and the Russian Federation, starting in 1990. As of 2015, there have been almost 20,000 cases of thyroid cancer reported in children and adolescents who were exposed at the time of the accident. Approximately 5,000 of these thyroid cancers are probably linked to children drinking fresh milk containing radioactive iodine from cows who had eaten contaminated grass in the first few weeks following the accident. Yeah. Like I said, it falls, yeah. in, it falls onto crops and just grass. Yeah. And, you know, it, it moves up the, uh, the food the chain. The food too. chain yeah. also, yeah. exactly. Um, and then the remaining 15,000 are due to a variety of factors, such as increased spontaneous incidence rate with aging of the population, awareness of thyroid cancer risk after the, the accident, and improved diagnostic methods to detect thyroid cancer. So what I want to say here is that, I mean, the numbers are higher, and there is a consensus that the radiation did cause an increase in incidence, but it's also important to note that people also became more aware that this is a problem and then testing increased. And I just want to say that to be like accurate. Yeah. That actually comes up uh, <clears throat> in, in my part later too, mm-hmm. uh, regarding fallout. Mm-hmm. It's a good, good setup. Good setup. But, um, but I do want to talk about thyroid cancer. So you might be wondering why thyroid cancer specifically, like why not a different kind of cancer? So the thyroid is an endocrine gland in the neck, right below the Adam's apple. And it produces three types of hormones that influence the metabolic rate and protein synthesis. And it also influences growth and development in children and also calcium homeostasis. Mm. Um, and it's a fickle little organ too, because <laughs> like a lot of people just have it like be too big. And oh, yeah. it just causes so many issues. Fickle little organ. Well, I mean, it, is, it becomes big because of other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. But it's fickle. <laughs> it's not more fickle than other organs. I see it as a fickle organ. I'm okay. just saying, like, my opinion as a historian is that the thyroid is a fickle organ. Okay, you can hold on to that opinion. I will. Um, but iodine is a key ingredient that goes into making thyroid hormone. And the iodine that is absorbed from food is stored in the thyroid gland. And so when radioactive iodine is released into the atmosphere, like iodine-131 did following the Chernobyl explosion... It is absorbed by the body and then stored in the thyroid, where it builds up and emits bursts of radiation, which then damages DNA and leads to complications later on. Mm. 
In any case, the increase in incidence in thyroid cancers are a known consequence of exposure to the radioactive fallout. The post-Chernobyl thyroid carcinomas are also more aggressive at presentation and more frequently associated with thyroid autoimmunity compared to naturally occurring thyroid carcinomas in Italy and France. So not only do they appear more, but they're also, they also present differently, like they're more aggressive. Mm. And I found a little bit of um, molecular background to like the bathogenesis just very shortly. So we know that around 70% of the cancers were also associated with mutations and the subsequent activation of the RET proto-oncogene. And proto-oncogenes are a group of completely normal genes in the cell, and they contain the necessary information for your body to make proteins which are responsible for stimulating cell division, for inhibiting cell differentiation, and preventing apoptosis, which is cell death. So this is all good and fine because cells need to differentiate, they need to proliferate, they, you know, it, it's completely normal. But sometimes when genes become mutated, they can become activated or they can also become turned off. And in the case of this gene, when it becomes mutated, it activates and it goes out of control and it leads then to uncontrollable cell proliferation and it leads to um, to the cell apoptosis signals not working anymore. So the cells proliferate very fast and they also don't go into cell death. And as we know, those are characteristics of cancerous cells. Yeah, like we need cells to die in a controlled way Yeah. or else. Yeah. Mm. So in addition to thyroid cancer, radiation-induced thyroid diseases include thyroid nodules, hypothyroidism, and autoimmune thyroiditis, with or without thyroid insufficiency. Take a shot every time I say the word thyroid. <laughs> I don't um, want alcohol poisoning. <laughs> um, it's also important to note that some illnesses develop with time. So a study observed an increased prevalence of circulating thyroid antibodies in children who were born between, I think, 2000 and 2006. And although they were not associated with thyroid dysfunction, it's likely that they will develop thyroid autoimmune disease over time. Mm. So this means that screening programs for at-risk populations should focus not only on detecting thyroid cancer, um, anything but o- yeah, but also on the development of thyroid autoimmune disease. So people who were like even slightly exposed, they need to be followed and um, screened for thyroid conditions. Yeah. So the last health effect or the last health consequences that I wanted to discuss has to do with fertility and birth defects. So there's actually a fair bit of controversy over whether the Chernobyl disaster had any long-lasting effects on reproductive fitness of those in the exposure zone. Actually, WHO, uh, WHO, produced a major study in 2005 that suggested that there was no evidence of increased risk of birth defects in contaminated areas, which actually continues to be the official position. And the study, hmm. the study has been very criticized because it underestimates the potential future health effects of the disaster and also for using selective reporting data. And now there's, you know, all these other studies popping up that are looking at the reproductive fitness of people in the air, and they're like, I don't know what you're saying, but what I'm saying is very different. Um, And what they're saying is that actually birth defect rates are higher than everywhere else in Europe. But obviously, nothing in science can be easy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So there's, um, there's a bit of controversy about that too. So one study conducted by somebody named 
uh, Wertolecki, I hope I'm saying the name right, that was concentrated on the Rivne province of Ukraine, which is about 200 kilometers from the Chernobyl plant, showed that the rate of birth defects in the babies born between 2000 and 2006 was far higher than the European average. So birth defects included neural tube defects, microcephaly, and microphthalmia. However, the author also notes, and this is where the controversy or like the complications come in, he notes that the study does not claim the radiation to definitely be the cause of effects, because the study lacked data about prenatal drinking and the diet of mothers in the region. So both alcohol consumption and folate deficiency during pregnancy are associated with increased risk for birth defects. And a lack of folate combined with ionizing radiation could enhance these risks. And the author also adds that studies so far have mostly been focused on the external exposure to radiation. So that's like levels of radiation like in the air. But what needs to be studied is internal exposure. So what is eaten, drunk, consumed, or breathed in for the air. So in conclusion, as always in science, more studies are needed. <laughs> Why can, can, can there ever be something that's like... Yes, we know this. <laughs> no more studies needed. We found needed. the answer. We found the answer. No yeah. more studies needed. No more studies <laughs> needed. I'd love for like a bachelor student to just do like a bad study and be like at the end, no more studies needed. Yeah. Figured yeah. it out. That would be very nice. But yeah, so more, more studies are needed. However, that is made complicated by the lack of funding and infrastructure in the affected areas, as well as lack of local knowledge in chronic disease epidemiology. So yeah. There's um there's a lot of stuff going on in in Pripyat in the areas around like yeah. cancer and radiation syndrome and like and these fertility and birth defects issues which we don't even really know like it feels yeah. like there's a lot of lack of knowledge um and pro- like probably a big part of that is like nobody wants to really conduct studies there like nobody wants to go there and i think that's a major part of why there's like data lacking i know that there's also a bit of controversy about like who is responsible yeah to do it Mm -hmm. because like there are you know like right after the disaster the soviet union didn't exist anymore so should is it russia should should russia do something about it should yeah should ukraine Mm. should belarus do its own thing because they were you know like the position of like belarus and poland for example who aren't they didn't, they didn't have the nuclear power plant in them. Uh, they are not like like the Soviet Union. They're not they're not Russia. So, but they still are very much affected. Should they do their own stuff, or should they seek like re- retribution from Ukraine? Yeah, should they yeah. seek retribution from Russia, or both? Like it's it's a lot like passing the radioactive ball between mm-hmm. each other. And um, yeah. yeah, yeah, and like the people who are affected are just left to not know. Yeah what to do and just kind of like yeah stumble through the dark it's also like a lot of unknowns too because like obviously none, nothing like this had happened before yeah and it's or since all right so now i'm gonna talk about chernobyl now because there's more than just people right mm. there's also the plants and the animals that were affected and i think that's it's a very interesting like conversation around the nature because a lot of people so i mean you probably know but like um pripyat and like the the whole exposure area is now bustling with animals that are yeah. living their best life because there's no humans and there's no human activity um so there's a safe, safe zone for yeah for boar yeah for like some some um, species that were they used to be um threatened are now you know multiplying and, and coming up in in the hordes so, the, hordes, <laughs> the hordes of boar. 
the horse and there was this asian um species of horse i don't remember what it's called but it's like the species that was like almost causing extinction and it's thriving there mm. but anyway there here's the thing is like people see that people see that there is a lot of animals and then these questions come up of like how come the animals are fine like mm. what's what's the deal with the animals like are they affected by the radiation um, are they healthy? And so this is what I kind of wanted to talk about. Yeah. So as we know, after the explosion, a 2,600 kilometer square area around the power plant called the exclusion zone was closed off to people. And like I said, it, it has become kind of a nature reserve where wild animals live undisturbed because, you know, you're not allowed to hunt. You're not allowed to go there. You're not allowed. You're like, yeah, people just don't go there. Yeah. And so the place is a, is a haven for more than 60 rare species, including lynx, bison, which bisons are also rare. Yeah, the European bisons are yeah. very rare. Uh, deer, boar, elk, wolves. Mm, boar. <laughs> the pigs. I'm obsessed with boar. You love boars. Wolves, you know, wolves are also yeah. pretty rare. Um, and the, the horses. So much of the radiation was absorbed by the coniferous forest surrounding the power plant. In June 1986, they noticed mass mortality of pine trees over an area of 600 hectares with an estimated absorbed rate of 60 to 100 gray. No seeds were produced for five to seven years in a further 3,800 hectares of forest, and those trees were the ones absorbing doses of 30 to 40 gray. And some other effects, including growth reduction, were observed at doses of 0.5 to 1 gray. Yeah, so, so you they, can, yeah, they're all affected, basically. Yeah, so you can kind of see like the um, like the the worsening of tree health. Yeah, the, the fitness of the trees as you get closer to the to the power plant. So like the furthest away trees are. Um, you like know, growing they're, a bit they're growing a bit slow and then you get closer and they're not producing seeds and then you go even closer and they're just, just dying, dying and moss. I've heard that like in the in the immediate aftermath of the explosion, like in the days following, a lot of the trees around around the power plant just turned red. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is just like, that's apocalyptic yeah. stuff. I imagine like being in the cleanup crew mm-hmm. and just, just like, Hmm. The entire area is turning into a wasteland with like the the burrs falling off the trees, uh, the trees turning red. I'm not sure. Smoke everywhere. Mm-hmm. The power plant is just like ionizing, glowing. I'm not. I'm not sure why they turned red, but you stylistic choice. <laughs> They think it's the post-apocalypse. Red is a good color. Yeah, that's true. There is also a 30-fold reduction of forest invertebrates at 3 to 7 kilometers from the power plant. And it's interesting because invertebrates, and that's like bugs, they are mm. less sensitive to radiation than mammals. So still, they also, like, they, they died. Like 30 times more than they usually do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. However, we do know that they're more sensitive during early life stages, which is probably why their numbers dwindled. Probably like when they were, you know, eggs and pupae and stuff. That's yeah. that's the ones that died. And this happened in spring too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, their populations recovered within a few years, though. Although the species diversity was lower than before the accident, so don't you worry, the bugs are back. <laughs> Hell yeah! Yeah, the bugs. Like radioactive bugs. The bugs survive everything. So let's talk about mammals. Immediately following the accident, the radiation led to the death of many wild mammals. And we apparently there was a study that looked at the numbers of rodents, recording in autumn 1986. Uh, however, numbers increased the year after, probably due to immigration. Or migration, I don't know. Can you refer immigration? to... Immigration? Can you refer to an animal as an immigrant? <laughs> Just immigrant rats? I yeah, like immigrant this. rats, yeah. I also love how the, the, the rats, I'm telling you, like the rats and the bugs, they, they can survive anything. Yeah. So 40 years after the accident, 
There is no consensus on the impact of chronic exposure to radiation on wildlife. So here's where the kind of the, the conversation kind of, you know, there's different perspectives because some have suggested that animals are able to thrive due to the removal of human inhabitants. But this is mainly based on anecdotal evidence, not scientific studies. So just because you see a bunch of animals running around doesn't mean that their populations are healthy, you know, because there's more to health than just like, are you alive? <laughs> um, like, popula yeah, like populations may be abundant. <laughs> Are you alive? Are yes, you alive? we're healthy. Because <laughs> yeah, because populations are abundant. But do those animals have the same age structure? Do they have the same reproductive success as those less exposed to radiation? We don't know that. Mm. And also, like you have to think about the fact that animals, and especially um, prey animals, they will often die not because of old age, but because they're hunted. Yeah. You know, so they maybe don't even have. The, a chance to develop cancer or whatever because they get eaten by the wolves mm. so those are also like points they kind of have to take into consideration when mm. thinking about like how does the radiation affect these mammals mm, exactly. i know that there have been studies on boar that's why i keep talking about boar mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. like boar are like more radioactive than they should be and that they have like they have some small like genetic mutations that as happens when you get like irradiated mm -hmm. uh, but that they're like that they're mostly doing fine mm -hmm. but that they are spreading throughout Europe the radioactive war yes because they, because this zone is, is, is so good for them right like they can they can reproduce it also means that like herd of boar I don't know what the plural of boar is um, a family of boar will occasionally like just you know migrate out and like slowly spread mm -hmm. and they keep reproducing and then they spread and they keep reproducing and they spread so like there i've heard i'm not super so, sure of the science on this but I, I know that there is like you you can check on the genetics if like a certain boar population comes from chernobyl because they they will have like small genetic damage compared to other boar yeah it's kind of complicated to talk about um like because like genetic mutations don't always get transmitted to to offspring exactly so it, i mean i don't i don't want to say like Oh, you know they're gonna mess with the whole population of European boar because oh, no, we, you yeah. know, we don't we don't know that. Like we don't know yeah. how much of those mutations actually get transmitted. Yeah, um, I don't think they study even like saw that as a concern. I yeah. think they were just like they're just spreading. Okay. Uh, we're just like, mm -hmm. we're just getting more boar. Mm -hmm. We're getting invaded by boar, and yeah. this is their main base. I guess we need to invade. It's it's also interesting because like a lot of these mutations don't necessarily do anything, but then other mutations that I'm gonna mention. They do actually contribute to like reduced like fertility, or they they contribute to like birth defects, which is a problem. Yeah. Um. Something else I wanted to say is that it's also a bit weird to say that like oh the animals are fine because we know that in some of these zones the animals receive rates of radiation that we know are above the rates that we know impair reproductive success. So. <laughs> Yeah, they're living, but are they living though? They're living. <laughs> so there is this 2007 study by Moller, Musso, and coworkers, which uh, looked at reduced diversity and abundance of forest birds. And I'm saying forest because there's like specific species, but I'm not going to go into everyone's. Hmm. So forest birds in areas with doses higher than one gray. So they noted the incidence of germline mutations, increased sperm deformities reduced egg viability, albinistic and deformed feathers, and reduced survival rates in barn swallows. 
and I do have to say again, it's like it can never be simple with with science. The study has been criticized for its choice of dosimetry approaches, so the way they calculated radiation dose. So you know you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. Like we don't know exactly. Maybe maybe they were exposed to more radiation than we thought, mm. or than they said um, that the birds were exposed to. But um, I did want to mention it because it seems to be one of the few that actually looks at reproductive system of animals as opposed to just looking like at population size. Yeah. Finally, it is just generally agreed that we have to perform more research, more research needed as oh, always on the consequences of radiation exposure to mammals if we want to like draw better conclusions regarding like the safety of reintroducing people to the area. Yeah. So that's it with the for for the plants and the animals. They yeah they are they're living but they're they're, they're little... not living except for boar. Yeah, boar can't stop a boar. <laughs> the bo- a boar would be able to take out the elephant's foot. <laughs> that is the hidden weapon of that's the Soviet the Union. <laughs> there's there's a reason why the Soviet Union lasted as long as it did. It's boar. A lot of boar. Um. So what else is Chernobyl up to? This is my last... What is it up to? What is it up to? What's it up to? <laughs> um, yeah, what, 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 what's Chernobyl up to? Uh, well... What are they getting down to? They're, they're getting down to organizing tours to unsuspecting European uh, unsuspecting. tourists. <laughs> unsuspecting. No, they know what they're getting into. Anyway, I just wanted to mention it because I think it's interesting that they have tours there even though the animals are running around. Yeah. Anyway, I listen... The position, uh, the official position, is that it's safe. And who, I mean, I don't, you know, I'm, I don't know anything about radiation. I'm not going to say mm. it's not. I don't think I would go personally, but the official position is it's safe. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've seen like a lot of YouTubers <clears throat> go to like Pripyat and like go around the abandoned city because it's completely abandoned, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for like I think one or two buildings that is used by like containment workers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Like from like you know if you go around with like radiation meter like mm-hmm. most places I think are pretty safe but then again there are like basements where they dumped like stuff from the disaster that you can get into yeah there you, I, I'm, sh- yeah, I'm sure exactly. you can't like go to the reactor itself I, like there are definitely exactly. like hotspot areas in there. I mean, but as I've, long as you like know what like streets are safe you're probably mm-hmm. fine. but as you say it's so like, yeah spiky. so so again like the official position is that it's safe and I'm gonna talk a bit about like risk management and risk assessment oh. I think I'm just like an anxious person. And I don't know about, um, I think I'm just a bit, (laughs) I've studied cancer, but I've worked in a cancer research lab and I'm just, I really don't like cancer. I'm afraid of cancer. Yeah. So I feel like, reasonable. I feel like I I would just not want to put myself in like a position where there, there's even like a slight chance of my risk of developing cancer, like could increase. Mm. So, but that's just me, you know? So the the idea with the tours is that we're all exposed to radiation every day. And that's like a natural part of the environment. And there's, you know, there's terrestrial radiation that's emanating from the earth. There's um, internal radiation generated by living organisms. And then there's cosmic radiation from the sun and stars, which yeah. we already mentioned. And, and it's also just like in food. There's, there's radiation everywhere. And there is this number that I'm going to use. So on average... A person in the United States is exposed to about three millisieverts, which is uh, oh, sievert. Sievert. I know that. I know that. Yeah. Thing. I, I try. I actually converted it to gray, so I can, um, you know, like stay consistent. Mm. So three millisieverts is zero point zero zero three gray, uh, and that's per year, and that's considered safe. And we know that chromosomal damage begins at a dose between zero point zero five and zero point two gray. 
and then uh, white blood cells cell levels start dropping at between 0.2 and 1 gray. 2 gray and up can cause zero, a serious radiation sickness, and then death follows within days of exposure to 10 gray. And we know that following the nuclear meltdown, dozens of cleanup workers at the power plant were exposed to radiation levels as high as 8 to 16 gray. Um, and that led to the 134 workers developing radiation sickness and, uh, you know, 28 passing away. So after the explosion, radioactive fallout was distributed unevenly across the surrounding area due to, like we said, weather conditions and changing winds. So the ruins of the Chernobyl reactors are highly radioactive and will remain so for up to 20,000 years. But some zones in Chernobyl the ones that are open to the public are the ones who actually received lower initial doses of radiation. So the tours are strictly regulated. Tourists are not permitted to wander on their own. And they also have to check in at a checkpoint for dosimetric control. And also there's an additional radiation checkpoint midway through the tour. So um, yeah. I also read this article, I think it was by New York Times, um, and they showed pictures of the um, the tour guide with like a, a the dosimetry yeah. tool. A dosimeter. Dosimeter, yeah, just uh, like moving around the air and like checking the radiation. Mm. So they, you know, they they check it. Yeah, well, thank uh, God for that. Like, and, and I mm-hmm. can imagine why they don't let people go off on their own. Because yeah, if they do, like, oh, I'm just going to check out this building, dead. Exactly. Like, you really have to only, like, you have to follow the, the symmetry, yeah. right, to see, like, where the radiation is safe enough. And visitors are also not allowed to touch any structures. They're not allowed to touch any plants, remove anything from the zone. And they're prohibited from sitting or placing any equipment on the ground. So, you know, it's very strict and like, I'm sure that the safety precautions they have are like more than fine. Um, I think it's just like, you know, like a personal like anxiety from, from me personally, yeah. but. I think I'd like to go. I'd love to see the journal. I hose you down before you're, before you're back. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I can check myself with a decimeter before I go. I would still hose you down. Okay. And you're not doing this podcast <laughs> if I'm irradiated. <laughs> No, if if you're if you go to Chernobyl and don't let me hose you, podcast over. Okay. Um, I also it's it was really cool in the this, to see the article. It was like one of those long, um, like a travel review or something, and and they also showed like where they stayed, um, overnight, like the the hostels and stuff, and they were so delightfully Soviet. Yeah. <laughs> the part of me that is obsessed with like Soviet history and like Soviet culture and aesthetic was like. Living. That part was living. <laughs> so anyway, that's that is animals and that is tours. Now, Mia, do you have anything to tell us about the legacy? We've gone through the history of Chernobyl, mm-hmm. the history of of how the disaster happened, the horrifying health implications that that has had for both in the short term and the long term. And now I'm going to talk like, what have we learned? <laughs> uh, what have we learned from this disaster? We've learned some good lessons, mm-hmm. and we've also learned some bad lessons. Unfortunately, we've learned some wrong things occasionally. For many reasons, this disaster made a lot of people untrusting of nuclear power, just generally, uh, which is pretty unfortunate because nuclear reactors are only really dangerous when they suffer meltdowns or when they have leaks, which, as we've discussed, obviously has a bunch of issues, but that happens extremely rarely, especially compared to health issues that arise from other types of power generation, primarily coal and oil power plants. Mm -hmm. Because they harm people close to the plants while working as intended. Because they just spew radiation, like actual radiation, into the sky as part of pollution. Coal power plants are radioactive. Like, because they they produce, like, radioactive isotopes. 
And people who live close to coal power plants are at much higher uh, risk of developing cancer. But no one talks about yeah, that. Yeah, I feel like that's not something you hear a lot. I know, but that's because it happens so often. And also that because it's like it, part of the job. Like it's like it's part of the job and it's part of the, like, it's part, kind of part of what you expect. Mm-hmm. And and because it doesn't happen in this, like, big, like, spectacle mm-hmm. thing, yeah. it's sort of, like, buried. Like, mm-hmm. unless something goes wrong, it's not really going to be written about. Like, there are power plants all over the place that are causing cancer right now. Mm-hmm. But you can't have a news article about that every day. It's not like Chernobyl where one thing goes boom and it's really sensational news. And that is uh, unfortunate, I think, because uh, as we're trying to sort of like move away from fossil fuels, there's there's a part of me that really likes nuclear power. Mm-hmm. But then like a big the- argument against nuclear power is the health thing. And uh, there's a part of me that's just like, we have that, but worse already. Yeah. Uh, plus, obviously, the uh, the incredible harm that fossil fuels are causing the planet. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you might say nuclear power is still bad because of the risks of nuclear disaster. Well, much of what happened at Chernobyl could only have happened in those reactors because of their design flaw and because many Soviet nuclear reactors didn't have what's called a containment building. The reactor building of Chernobyl was standing there like as a, as a power plant normally is, but most nuclear power plants have a sort of like additional shield mm. that's built on top of the building itself. So if something happens to the reactor, there's sort of like, a, like a shield on top of it. And that would have prevented much radiation from leaking out of the reactor at all. It would have prevented the entire dust cloud. It would have, it would have basically prevented much of it. It would still have exploded and a lot of people yeah. would still have gotten hurt, but it, there wouldn't have been a dust cloud. It wouldn't have been... Any major issues. Right. Pripyat would be fine. Because didn't you also mention something about how mm, some of the reason why the fallout was so bad? Mm. And didn't you also mention that a big reason why all of this happened is because it was kind of built like relatively cheaply? Yes. So right, like yeah, they didn't have this 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 protection dome. Mm-hmm. Because it is expensive to have that. Mm. Yeah, and even you said something about how, like, because the water is cheap, like, maybe a better coolant could, like... Yeah, like, again, maybe water have, works um, fine as a, yeah. as a protection, but, uh, yeah, it, less margin for error. Like, mm-hmm. things have to go well yeah. to use water. And even if they had stayed within their safety limits that they had, things would have been fine. It's just that everything went wrong, and also it was built cheaply, and mm-hmm. also didn't have the dome, and also, yeah. like, things were wrong, it, and they reacted like, with xenon. It was, it was like a perfect training. storm. Yeah. yeah. Like, anything that could have gone wrong went wrong. And, like, even even just a one additional thing could have prevented the entire disaster yeah. from happening, or just one of the steps that they already had, if they just followed the rules, things would have been mm-hmm. fine still. Mm-hmm. So, um... And also, like, many reactors don't have this design flaw either, where there will be, like, an unexpected surge of power as you're inserting control rods. Yeah. Like, many reactors don't even have that, and that's that's what's caused the explosion in the first place. So, again, perfect storm, as you said. Now, normally, we should have an equivalent containment measure for fossil fuel plants, but because they're common, people don't have that, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And I want to talk a little bit about, like, coal-fired power plants here as well, because, like, we talked about, like, potential health risks and deaths associated with Chernobyl, but researchers estimated 1.37 million cases of lung cancer, specifically around the world, will be linked with coal-fired power plants in 2025. That is a lot of cancer. It's yep. way more than anything that Chernobyl had. And that's not to mention the other health effects from like general air pollution and other health effects that come from burning coal. So that's my defense speech on nuclear power <laughs> that, that I just wanted to have in this episode about Chernobyl. But that said, Chernobyl was an example of things going horribly wrong because on top of the health issues that have arisen from this, there are still effects of the disaster in many places around the world today, as you mentioned partially as well. 
The nuclear fallout that reached Sweden, for example, managed to find its way into moss in northern Sweden. Mm-hmm. Like it f- fell into into the forest, into the moss, which reindeer eat, and it raised the radioactivity of the reindeer to an extent where you could not eat the meat anymore. Mm-hmm. It went above the safety limits. Wait, so is that still a problem? Ooh, I'll, I'll get to that. And this in the eighties, this was really bad for the Sami community because suddenly mm-hmm. they couldn't sell their reindeer, which is one of the main sources of yeah. income for yeah. a lot of Sami communities. And they had to slaughter like huge populations because they became, had become too irradiated. And this meant that a lot of Sami communities had a disruption in income, which uh, affected them quite severely until they could get like government support that would be implemented in response to this. That's right, baby. We got to indigenous rights in an episode about Chernobyl. Social justice podcast never fails. The very dangerous levels in, in reindeer dropped fairly quickly. But still today, reindeer in Sweden are a bit more radioactive than they should be. Are they safe they, to eat? They are safe to eat, mm. but they also changed the level of what is safe to eat in response to this. So like, so I'm they, guessing amounts, like you, you, you probably shouldn't eat like above a certain amount of reindeer meat. No, it, it's, more, it's more in the sense of like how radioactive can the meat be before you can sell it. And normally it was... I don't know what it is in grace, but it, it, the, the unit that they used was something different than anything that we mentioned before. Mm-hmm. But it was like, for say for example, it was it was a thousand mm-hmm. units of mm-hmm. radioactivity, and then in response to this disaster, they they raised it to one and a half thousand because mm-hmm. they figured they realized that like you can actually eat a little bit of radioactive meat and it's fine, but for a long time those reindeer had like way higher. Levels, but now it's a bit better. Another lesson that might sound a bit contradictory is that this disaster has made us make nuclear power safer because we've learned like the worst case scenario so when nuclear disasters happen like in places like japan in uh, fukushima daichi which is the nuclear power plant there that went uh, bad in the aftermath of an earthquake when that nuclear disaster happened people knew very quickly how to respond to it and also it had this containment shield so nothing really did happen in response to that disaster there's only been one confirmed person who has died from radiation related conditions one person got uh, lung cancer uh, in connection to this which it's awful it's, but it's, it's awful it's, it it's does far better. it does show that people learned from history yeah, yeah yeah but something that we learned from 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 the fukushima disaster that we didn't really learn from from uh, chernobyl which we should have learned is that a lot of people died in the fukushima disaster but not from radiation but from evacuation stress mm-hmm. because we're so f- afraid of radiation and we should be because it's really bad there was such an intense rush to like move people out and leaving their belongings and leaving their homes and can't, they can't come back in, in like for dangers of radiation and that caused a lot of stress especially in the elderly hmm. so and that literally caused thousands of deaths evacuation stress do, compared like, to one case you, of lung cancer but how do you mean like death from stress like what exactly was the cause like stress related conditions like heart failure and uh-huh. like breathing problems and uh, like uh, yeah like so, like nothing to do with radiation, nothing mm, to do with power mm-hmm, plant, mm-hmm. but just ha- in our response to it. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. I did mention it, um, but I did read something about how psychological um, issues in the, you know, in the area that was exposed is actually making the situation worse because people yes. then turn to, you know, people turn to alcohol, people, turn, and yeah. that also contributes to to health problems and especially like you know women, pregnant women drinking during pregnancy and maybe like raises the the number of like birth defects and you yeah. know infertility and things like that. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the legacy parts of Chernobyl, right? We got so scared of nuclear power that there's some that are arguing that we are overcorrecting now mm. in the case of like if if a nuclear 
disaster happens, we really only need like to have like this additional shield and you know have a reactor that that doesn't have design flaws in it, and then we're basically fine. We can have like a slow evacuation. We don't have to like have a like a massive social people. panic yeah. attack yeah. because that will, as you say, make things a lot worse. So that that is also a bit of a wrong lesson that we've learned. Mm. Like we've become a bit too scared of radiation. That's very interesting. Yeah, mm. and that's my uh, that's 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 my thing on the thing. <laughs> All right. I got to include indigenous rights. Yeah, nice. We love we love an element of uh, social justice. I was actually thinking, like, oh, you know what I was thinking? We don't have Nazis in this episode. There's I no was, Nazis in this I world. was actually going to ask, like, are we going to hear about Nazis? <laughs> I could have mentioned Nazis. Really? I could have mentioned Nazis, but only in the sense of, like, in, like if I wanted to go into, like, the development of nuclear energy. I don't know if this is a connected wealth to think, but do you, do you know a big reason why the Nazis didn't... Uh, were able to develop the nuclear bomb because they're so anti-Semitic they dismissed a lot of scientists who mm-hmm. were Jewish mm. many of whom Typical. were involved in nuclear science like Einstein for example Einstein had to flee Germany and go to the US so a lot of like the nuclear knowledge that Germany had went to the USA and they got to you know develop the nuclear bomb early how, wh- how embarrassing for the Nazis I know oh it feels so good <laughs> Oh, the humiliation of sending away the the, the most the, intelligent the nuclear know. physicist and the United States receiving all the all the knowledge. Oh. I should say though that this time you were the one who brought up the Nazis. That's true. Not me. Alright. Um, well, this was our episode on uh, nuclear power in Chernobyl. Yes. And we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed it. Hope that your nuclear reaction has been stable. What? I hope that the reaction of, of, of the of the audience has been stable and not out of control. Oh my god. If our jokes have caused void... Uh, void bubbles. Void bubbles. Then uh, do not insert the control rods all at the same time. Um, we would like to thank our patrons who are supporting us. And uh, if you would also like to support us, please go to Twitter, uh, po- um, Leechfest, uh, <laughs> Leechfest Pod, mm-hmm. um, or go to Patreon, Leechfest Podcast. Your support means a lot and it helps us to keep it going. Yeah. And thank you for, Me? yes, you for uh, like being patient enough with my, with my bad jokes about radiation. <laughs> And inserting rods into course. We hope you enjoy the podcast and we'll see you next time. Bye! <laughs>